0: Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday school lesson for April 24th, 2022. This is the second Sunday of Easter. And quite appropriately for the Sunday after Easter, we have John chapter 20 verses 19 through 31 and one of Jesus... Resurrection appearances to the disciples. So, John 20, 19 through 31, we have Jesus appearing, we have Doubting Thomas, we have the office of the keys, a great collection of stuff to look at in these 12 verses or so, so let's uh, let's get right to it. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So, this is the evening of that day, the first day of the week. So, this is Easter Sunday. In the morning of this day, the women have gone to the tomb and discovered that the stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. An angel has announced to them that Jesus is risen from the dead. Peter and John have run to the tomb. They have found it empty. And so they have Christ's promises from before his death that he would rise. They have the angel's word that he is risen. Mary Magdalene has seen Jesus risen from the dead already this day. And yet the disciples are are locked behind closed doors out of fear. And again, we note that, that this is the first day of the week Jesus was crucified on Friday, the sixth day of the week. He rested on the seventh day, and now he's risen on the first day of the week, or we might say the eighth day of the week of his passion, death, and resurrection. I bring that up because the church has always considered Sunday to be both the first day of the week and the eighth day of the week, because the number eight is a symbol of new creation. How many days did it take for God to create the heavens and the earth? Six days. He rested on the seventh. So on the eighth day, the new week began. How many people were saved in the ark? It was Noah and his wife. There are three sons and their three wives, so eight were there. As as a, a new start for mankind was provided through through the flood, as God drowned the wicked. Here, Jesus rises from the dead on the first day of the week, which is also the eighth day of the week, to symbolize a new beginning and a new creation, because he has accomplished the salvation of the world by his death and resurrection, which means. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And and so, so Jesus rises on the first day, which is also the eighth day of the week, to say, new life is upon us because Christ is risen from the dead. The disciples are not quite yet rejoicing in the resurrection of the dead. As we've just said before, even though they have... God's word to go on through Jesus himself, through the angels, through the testimony of the women, through the testimony of Mary Magdalene, they're still locked in the room for fear that they're the next ones to die. But even though the doors are locked, even though they're they're secured against outsiders, we read that Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And that is a remarkable thing. We might hear it every time and gloss over it because what else would Jesus say? Well, Jesus also judges the sinner who does not repent. So he could say to the disciples, you're fired or woe to you or you've got to act a whole lot better than this if you're going to follow me. But he says none of those things. Instead, his first words to the disciples who are locked in a room out of fear, his first words are, peace be with you. And that's not just take it easy, calm down, I'm not here to hurt you. Rather, it's an absolution. Jesus is saying to the disciples, you are at peace with me and with God my Father because... I just took all your sins away by my death on the cross. It was your sins that put you at enmity with God. It was your sins that made you and God hostiles to one another. Now if I've taken away the sin that made you an enemy of God, what's left? Peace. So the first word that Jesus speaks to the disciples is the word of absolution, of peace. Their sins are gone, that they are at peace with God. We go on to read then in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So after Jesus speaks peace, speaks, and by speaking gives forgiveness to the disciples, he shows them his hands and his side. He shows them the scars from the nails that went through his palms. He shows them the gash where the spear went in. And although he's risen from the dead, he retains these wounds. He retains these scars. In fact, later on in Revelation uh, chapter 5, verse 6, when when John sees Jesus seated on the throne, he describes him as a lamb who is living, even though he appears to have been slain. So even though Jesus will raise us up with perfect bodies, new creations in every way, he retains his scars, these testimonies of his love for us, his death on the cross for us, that we might have eternal life. Now, once Jesus has spoken peace, once he showed them his scars, the disciples are finally glad to see him. Why? Well, there's some debate about this, but but maybe the best explanation is that um, Since they're unconvinced that Jesus is risen from the dead, what's the next best option? They've thought he was a ghost before, and so perhaps they think that Jesus is in fact some, some ghost or evil spirit in the form of Jesus to torment them since they abandoned him when he was betrayed. But now that that they've heard him speak, now that they've seen his hands and his side, now that they know that Jesus is risen from the dead, body and all, now they are glad to see the Lord, for they're assured that he is risen from the dead. So now that Jesus has restored the disciples to him, he gives them a calling. We read in verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, the word for sending in Greek is the word apostello. That's the word from which we get the word apostle. Apostello, apostle. So, an apostle is one who is sent. Not just to the store for groceries or whatever, but an apostle is like an ambassador or the herald of a king. An apostle is one who is sent by his superior to deliver the superior's news, to deliver the superior's proclamations or decrees or words. So when Jesus says to the apostles, I am sending you, he's saying, I'm sending you to do what I want you to do. I'm sending you to say what I want you to say. So he reiterates that they're at peace again, and he says, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, which means Jesus is the Father's apostle, even so I am sending you as my apostles. So what does Jesus want them to say? What does Jesus want them to do? We read in verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now a couple big things here. we uh, we already said that that this is the the first day of the week, the eighth day which is a a sign, a symbol of new creation. Remember, What happened when God first created Adam? The Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Here, by forgiving their sins, by giving them peace, Jesus is making the disciples new creations. He's he's making them his his sent ones, his apostles, and so as the Father breathed life into Adam, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit who delivers Jesus' forgiveness to us. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us faith and life. So as God the Father first breathed life into Adam, so Jesus breathes new life into the disciples, the apostles, by giving them the Holy Spirit. We should note as well here that we're talking Trinity. As the Father has sent me, says the Son, so I am sending you, receive the Holy Spirit. So just like at baptism, where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all at work for your salvation, now in the proclamation of the Word, in the Word of Absolution, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all at work so that you might be forgiven. So that you might have life and so that you might be absolved of your sins. Now, it sounds a little bit strange to us for Jesus to say to the apostles, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And this puzzlement sometimes pops up in church today when somebody visits and they hear the pastor, in in the case of Good Shepherd, when they hear me say, I forgive you all of your sins. And sometimes people walk out at the end of church or they write me kind of an angry letter afterwards and say, who do you think you are to be forgiving sins? Only God forgives sins, not you. And they're right, but they're also wrong. The answer is that I am nobody to forgive sins, and I'm not the one who's doing it. If you listen to the whole absolution, what the absolution says, well, I'll say the absolution first. Um, Upon this, your confession, I... I'm saying what God says. In fact, this is the role of the pastor as he continues the apostolic ministry or as he continues to say what Jesus sent the apostles to say. So in the absolution, the pastor doesn't say, I forgive you. He says, as a pastor, I am called to say what Jesus would say if he were standing here. And having just heard people confess their sins, having heard you just confess your sins, Jesus would say to you, I forgive you. That's what the absolution is. It's Jesus speaking forgiveness through the mouth of the pastor. Now, can that actually happen? I point you to Acts chapter 3. Because as Jesus first commissions the apostles to speak his word, he also gives them the ability to perform miracles, to heal diseases and cast out demons. So in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking to the temple, and outside the temple they find a man who is lame, who is crippled. He can't walk. And he asks them for alms, for money. And Peter says to him, I have no gold or silver, but I'll give you what I do have. And then he says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the cripple can walk. In fact, he starts leaping for joy. And nobody says to Peter, Who do you think you are healing this man? Well, if anybody did ask Peter that, he would say, I myself am nobody, but I'm here to say what Jesus would say if he saw that crippled man, and Jesus would say to him, rise up and walk. That's the same authority that Jesus gives to his church today to forgive sins. And so that's what the pastor is doing in the absolution. He's saying, I'm here to say what Jesus would say to repentant sinners, and Jesus would say, I forgive you. And this is what Jesus begins, or renews, actually, when he says to the apostles, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Now note, Jesus doesn't stop there. He also says, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So, it is a task of the church, and of pastors on behalf of the church, to tell repentant people that they are forgiven for their sins. It is also the task of the church, as Jesus calls us to do, to tell unrepentant people that they're not forgiven for their sins. Why do we do that? Because we want to speak God's word to them, to tell them that they need to repent, and we trust that the Holy Spirit is working through the law of God to convict people of their sin and to show them their need for repentance. And you bet, sometimes people get angry at that, and they'll lash out, or they'll go away and not come back. But Jesus tells us to tell the truth. We tell repentant sinners the truth that they're forgiven because Jesus died for them. And we tell unrepentant sinners that they're not forgiven because they don't repent. But if they do repent, then they too can be forgiven because Jesus died for them. So we have here in John chapter 20 what's called the proper work and the alien work of God. The proper work of God, what God sets out to do is forgive sins and give eternal life to sinners. The alien work of God, what he does not wish to do is to withhold forgiveness. But for those who don't want to be forgiven, he says, all right, have it your way. You're not forgiven. You can keep your sin and the condemnation that comes with it. All right, so this is uh, the part of our text that deals with the office of the keys, uh, verses uh, 19 through 23. And now we move on to verse 24 in the story of Thomas. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So, Thomas is absent. We have no idea why he's not there. The the implication, or at least many people infer, that Thomas is not there because he's more despairing than the rest and sees no need to hang out with the other ten disciples who are still alive. But even so, if that's true, he comes back to see them shortly thereafter. I would say this. Thomas gets labeled doubting Thomas for this text, And I would just point out, maybe that's a little bit unfair. Because why are the rest of the disciples in a locked room? Because they've been doubting too. They're afraid for their lives because they don't believe Jesus is risen from the dead. Until they see Jesus and his hands and his side. So sure, is Thomas doubting Thomas? Yes, just like doubting Andrew and doubting James and doubting John and doubting Peter and doubting Bartholomew and all the rest. So maybe we should call doubting Thomas, honest Thomas, because he's expressing what they were all thinking before Jesus appeared to them. But now, when they say we have seen the Lord, Thomas has further eyewitness testimony that Jesus is alive. He also doubts that, and he demands to see firsthand the risen Jesus. Not just see him, but touch him. Put his fingers into the nail holes in Jesus' hands. Put his hand into the side where the spear went in. And he says, without that first-person proof of touch, I will never believe. Well... We go on eight days later, which means the first day of the next week, another day of new creation. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They're still at peace. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. All right, so Jesus appears to the disciples, Thomas included. He renews peace with them, just like Jesus keeps telling us we're forgiven, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And then not only does he show himself to Thomas, but he also demonstrates to Thomas that he knows what Thomas said. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. He's heard Thomas's skepticism the week before, and now he comes to say to Thomas, "See, here I am. This is my body, which was sacrificed on the cross for your redemption. See, and if you must, um, put put your fingers into the nail prints of my hand." So, Jesus speaks to Thomas. Jesus is clearly really present body and all before Thomas, and Thomas believes. So, in verse 28, we hear Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, which uh, might simply be saying the same thing twice. It might be Thomas affirming both Jesus as man and divine, my Lord and my God. At any rate, rejoice, for Thomas believes. And Jesus says to him in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. When Jesus speaks that blessing, he's talking about you and me. You and I Have not seen the risen Jesus with our eyes. Faith comes by hearing. Jesus doesn't appear to us in visions and say, See, it's really me, so believe. Instead, he provides us with his word where we hear of Jesus, we hear his promises, we hear of his grace, and by the Holy Spirit working through that word of God, we believe in him and we're forgiven for our sins. Besides not seeing Jesus, though, you and I, we're pretty much in the same position as the disciples, Thomas included, in our text. Jesus spoke to them. Jesus speaks to us. Jesus was really present with them. He shows his body to Thomas and says, here I am. Jesus is really present with you, unseen, hidden, hidden. Veiled, but in, with, and under the bread and wine of Holy Communion, which means Jesus, body, blood, and all, is just as present with you at the Lord's Supper as he was with Thomas and the other disciples in John chapter 20. And so, Jesus says to you, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are you, for Jesus still speaks to you in his word. He's still present with you, body, blood, and all in his supper. Our text concludes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing you may have life in his name. So, this is a great little conclusion to chapter 20 because it gives us the purpose of Scripture. Why are these things written? The Gospel of John, and by extension, all of the Bible, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. So, here in this text, we hear that we have peace with God. We have peace with God because we are forgiven for our sins. Because we are forgiven for our sins, that which causes unbelief is taken away. And so we have belief, we have faith. And if we have forgiveness and faith, we also have life in the name of Jesus. Kind of reminds me of the catechism, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. Hey, a couple of notes here before we conclude this podcast. First off, um, we remember this story from John 20 every time we celebrate Holy Communion in the Communion Liturgy. Because the pastor says the words of institution over the bread and wine. Then he turns around to the congregation, holds up the chalice of Christ's blood, and holds up the the wafer of bread, which is now also Christ's body, and he says to you, the peace of the Lord be with you always. So in John chapter 20, when Jesus first arrives in that locked room, he says to the disciples, peace be with you. Now that he is present in with and under the bread and wine, he says, peace be with you through the pastor. Or as the pastor says, the peace of the Lord, not the peace of Timothy, the peace of the Lord be with you always. Same Jesus, same body and blood that was with the disciples is with you. And so we remember that. We remember Jesus saying, peace be with you to the disciples As you hear the the Pax Domini, or the peace of the Lord be with you always during the Lord's Supper. Hey, one other quick note from this text. It's kind of a proof or a little point about Holy Communion because sometimes people say, you know, if you Lutherans were right, and during the words of institution, Jesus' body is now present in, with, and under the bread, the bread would have to change size, right? I mean, it would have to grow, maybe double in size if it's now both Jesus' body along with bread. But we have this this little proof from the story of the disciples in the locked room, and that is the disciples are in a room that's locked. No one can come in or out, but suddenly Jesus is there. So how did he get in? Didn't come through the door, that's locked. Didn't come through the window. We don't know that there are windows, but suddenly Jesus is just there. So he came, he came in somehow. So so let's say that he came through one of the walls. What happens when the incredible hulk goes through a wall? The wall breaks. It's got a big hole in it full of dust and rubble. When Jesus enters that room, though, there's no big Hole in the wall where he broke through. Somehow he has transported his body, his physical body, through a wall to be present with the disciples, which means that for a split second, Jesus' body is in that wall without breaking it or changing its size or occupying space. So if Jesus can do that to a wall, Jesus can also do that. To bread. And so we believe and know that as Jesus could go through a wall without breaking it, Jesus can be present in bread without altering its size. It's his body because he says so, but it doesn't take up space while he's there. How can he do that? He's the son of God giving us his body and his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Anyways, just a quick proof there, a quick argument to answer about the Lord's Supper. And with that, we're going to call it good with this podcast. So, God's blessings to you as you continue to explore this text and meditate upon it for yourself. Uh, God's blessings to you if you're teaching this to others. And we will see you next time. In the meantime, the peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen.